Good evening. Thanks for listening. This is White Ash Flies with Colin Mahoney presenting episode three of Lincoln Letters. The selected letters of Abraham Lincoln between 1859 and 1865. You can follow White Ash Flies on SoundCloud, Spotify, and on Twitter at Colin Mahoney15. And now, episode three of Lincoln Letters on White Ash Flies. To George M. Parsons and others. Springfield, Illinois, December 19, 1859. Messrs. George M. Parsons and others. Gentlemen, your letter of the seventh instant, accompanied by a similar one from the governor-elect, the Republican state officers, and the Republican members of the State Board of Equalization of Ohio, both requesting of me, for publication in permanent form, copies of the political debates between Senator Douglas and myself, last year, has been received. With my grateful acknowledgments to both you and them, for the very flattering terms in which the request is communicated, I transmit you the copies. The copies I send you are reported and printed by the respective friends of Senator Douglas and myself at the time. That is, his by his friends and mine by mine. It would be an unwarrantable liberty for us to change a word or a letter in his, and the changes I have made in mine, you perceive, are verbal only, and very few in number. I wish the reprint to be precisely as the copies I send, without any comment whatever. Yours very truly, to Samuel Galloway, Springfield, Illinois, December 19, 1859. Private. Honorable Samuel Galloway, This will introduce my friend, Mr. George Nicolay, who will deliver to you the copies of the debates you desire. As they cost a good deal of trouble to get them together, some of us have concluded to send them by him at our own expense, rather than risk their loss by any public conveyance. He is a printer, I believe, and certainly has conducted a newspaper, and can give something of my views a little more in detail than I could write them, and also some mechanical assistance in getting the thing started. He will remain a few days at our expense for that purpose. You will perceive the copies in all of the shapes sent are in a scrapbook, as they stood there, precisely in the shape I would prefer the publication to be made in. But as that includes with the joint debates six previously made speeches and the correspondence which led to the joint debates, it may make a larger job than you wish to undertake. These six speeches, however, are so frequently referred to in the joint debates as to make them a very proper, if not indispensable, accompaniment. If, however, you publish the joint debates only, then it is my wish to preserve the scrapbook unbroken. And for that contingency, 
Mr. Nicolay will furnish you another double set of the joint debates, so that Douglas's speeches may be taken from the paper friendly to him, and mine from that friendly to me. Of course, I wish the whole to be accurately done, but especially let there be no color of complaint that a word or letter in Douglas's speeches has been changed. Allow me to add that I esteem the compliment paid me in this matter as the very highest I have ever received, and to assure to the other kind friends that it shall ever be held in grateful remembrance. Still, I think it would be indelicate in me to publish the correspondence. You can do that if you desire. Yours very truly. P.S. I forgot to say in the proper place that the copies of the Columbus and Cincinnati speeches are a correction by me. P.S. Mr. Nicolay is a good Republican and a good man, and worthy of any confidence that may be bestowed upon him. To Jesse W. Fell, Enclosing Autobiography Springfield, December 20th, 1859. J. W. Fell, Esquire. My dear sir, herewith is a little sketch as you requested. There is not much of it, for the reason, I suppose, that there is not much of me. If anything be made out of it, I wish it to be modest, and not to go beyond the materials. If it were thought necessary to incorporate anything from any of my speeches, I suppose there would be no objection. Of course it must not appear to have been written by myself. Yours very truly. I was born February 12, 1809, in Hardin County, Kentucky. My parents were both born in Virginia, of undistinguished families. Second families, perhaps I should say. My mother, who died in my tenth year, was of a family of the name of Hanks, some of whom now reside in Adams, and others in Macon counties, Illinois. My paternal grandfather, Abraham Lincoln, emigrated from Rockingham County, Virginia, to Kentucky, about 1781 or two, where, a year or two later, he was killed by Indians, not in battle, but by stealth when he was laboring to open a farm in the forest. His ancestors, who were Quakers, went to Virginia from Berks County, Pennsylvania. An effort to identify them with the New England family of the same name ended in nothing more definite than a similarity of Christian names in both families, such as Enoch, Levi, Mordecai, Solomon, Abraham, and the like. My father, at the death of his father, was but six years of age, and he grew up literally without education. He removed from Kentucky to what is now Spencer County, Indiana, in my eighth year. We reached our new home about the time the state came into the Union. It was a wild region, with many bears and other wild animals still in the woods. There I grew up. There were some schools, so-called, 
but no qualification was ever required of a teacher, beyond reading, writing, and ciphering, to the rule of three. If a straggler supposed to understand Latin happened to sojourn in the neighborhood, he was looked upon as a wizard. There was absolutely nothing to excite ambition for education. Of course, when I came of age, I did not know much. Still, somehow, I could read, write, and cipher to the rule of three, but that was all. I have not been to school since. The little advance I now have upon this store of education I have picked up from time to time under the pressure of necessity. I was raised to farm work, which I continued till I was twenty-two. At twenty-one I came to Illinois and passed the first year in Macon County. Then I got to New Salem, at that time in Sangamon, now in Menard County where I remained a year as a sort of clerk in a store. Then came the Black Hawk War, and I was elected a captain of volunteers, a success which gave me more pleasure than any I have had since. I went the campaign, was elated, ran for the legislature the same year, 1832, and was beaten, the only time I ever have been beaten by the people. The next, and three succeeding biennial elections, I was elected to the legislature. I was not a candidate afterwards. During this legislative period, I had studied law and removed to Springfield to practice it. In 1846, I was once elected to the lower house of Congress. Was not a candidate for re-election. From 1849 to 1854, both inclusive, practiced law more assiduously than ever before. Always a Whig in politics, and generally on the Whig electoral tickets, making active canvases. I was losing interest in politics when the repeal of the Missouri Compromise aroused me again. What I have done since then is pretty well known. If any personal description of me is thought desirable, it may be said I am, in height, six feet four inches, nearly, lean in flesh, weighing, on an average, 180 pounds, dark complexion with coarse black hair and gray eyes, no other marks or brands recollected. Yours very truly. To James W. Sheehan, Springfield, January 24, 1860. James W. Sheehan, Esquire. Dear Sir, Yours of the 21st, requesting copies of my speeches now in progress of publication in Ohio, is received. I have no such copies now at my control having sent the only set I ever had to Ohio. Mr. George M. Parsons has taken an active part among those who have the matter in charge, in Ohio, and I understand Messrs. Follett, Foster, and Company are to be the publishers. I make no objection to any satisfactory arrangement you may make with Mr. Parsons and the publishers, and, if it will facilitate you, 
you are at liberty to show them this note. You labor under a mistake, somewhat injurious to me, if you suppose I have revised the speeches in any just sense of the word. I only made some small verbal corrections, mostly such as an intelligent reader would make for himself, not feeling justified to do more when republishing the speeches along with those of Senator Douglas, his and mine being mutually answers and replies to one another. Yours truly. To Norman B. Judd, Springfield, February 9, 1860. Honorable N.B. Judd, Dear Sir, I am not in a position where it would hurt much for me to not be nominated on the national ticket, but I am where it would hurt some for me to not get the Illinois delegates. What I expected when I wrote the letter to Messrs. Dole and others is now happening. Your discomfited assailants are most bitter against me, and they will, for revenge upon me, lay to the Bates egg in the south and to the Seward egg in the north, and go far toward squeezing me out in the middle with nothing. Can you not help me a little in this matter, in your end of the vineyard? I mean this to be private. Yours as ever. To Oliver P. Hall, Jacob N. Follenweider, and William F. Correll. Springfield, February 14, 1860. Messrs. O. P. Hall, J. R. Follenweider, and W. F. Correll. Gentlemen, your letter, in which, among other things, you ask, what I meant when I said this union could not stand half-slave and half-free, and also what I meant when I said a house divided against itself could not stand, is received. And I very cheerfully answer it as plainly as I may be able. You misquote to some material extent what I did say, which induces me to think you have not very carefully read the speech in which the expressions occur which puzzle you to understand. For this reason, and because the language I used is as plain as I can make it, I now quote at length the whole paragraph in which the expressions which puzzle you occur. It is as follows. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation is not only not ceased, but constantly augmented. I believe it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other.
Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it, and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it will become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. That is the whole paragraph, and it puzzles me to make my meaning plainer. Look over it carefully, and conclude I meant all I said and did not mean anything I did not say, and you will have my meaning. Douglas attacked me upon this, saying it was a declaration of war between the slave and the free states. You will perceive I said no such thing, and I assure you I thought of no such thing. If I had said, I believe this government cannot last always, half slave and half free, would you understand it any better than you do? endure permanently, and last always, have exactly the same meaning. If you, or any of you, will state to me some meaning which you suppose I had, I can and will instantly tell you whether that was my meaning. Yours very truly. To Mary Todd Lincoln, Exeter, New Hampshire, March 4th, 1860. Dear wife, When I wrote you before, I was just starting on a little speech-making tour, taking the boys with me. On Thursday they went with me to Concord, where I spoke in daylight, and back to Manchester, where I spoke at night. Friday we came down to Lawrence, the place of the Pemberton Mill tragedy, where we remained four hours awaiting the train back to Exeter. When it came, we went upon it to Exeter, where the boys got off, and I went on to Dover and spoke there Friday evening. Saturday I came back to Exeter, reaching here about noon, and finding the boys all right, having caught up with their lessons. Bob had a letter from you saying Willie and Taddy were very sick the Saturday night after I left. Having no dispatch from you, and having one from Springfield of Wednesday from Mr. Fitzhugh saying nothing about our family, I trust the dear little fellows are well again. This is Sunday morning, and according to Bob's orders, I am to go to church once today. Tomorrow I bid farewell to the boys, go to Hartford, Connecticut, and speak there in the evening. Tuesday at Meriden, Wednesday at New Haven, and Thursday at Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Then I start home, and think I will not stop. I may be delayed in New York City an hour or two. I have been unable to escape this toil. If I had foreseen it, I think I would not have come east at all. The speech at New York, being within my calculation before I started, went off passably well and gave me no trouble whatever. The difficulty was to make nine others, before reading audiences, who have already seen all my ideas in print. If the trains do not lie over Sunday, of which I do not know, 
I hope to be home tomorrow week. Once started, I shall come as quick as possible. Kiss the dear boys for father. Affectionately, 